Well, it's very good to be amongst you. Um, as was announced, I've come uh, across the pond from Oxford. We uh, are a small church plant belonging to Acts 29 Network, and it was through that uh, that we first came into contact with Sojourn Houston, and it has been a great blessing to me now over a number of years to come about once a year and meet with you and meet with the staff and to, to be blessed. We have in our church at the moment a man who's not yet a believer, who comes from Romania. He's a pretty rough man, and uh, he said to me recently, I do not like your Bible. I read it, and it contains all kinds of horrible things, things that should not happen. How can you call it holy? And my answer to him is that it is holy precisely because it portrays with brutal clarity the truth about this world, but with equal clarity the truth about God. Um, because the truth about this world is pretty brutal. I said to him, I said, you've seen plenty that is bad about this world. Why are you surprised to see it in the Bible? I know a little bit of his life. It has been punctuated by drug abuse, alcohol abuse, casual sex, sometimes with prostitutes, maybe even girls trafficked for that purpose. It's a world of violence. When I first met him, he was carrying the knife that he intended to use to take his own life. I said, you don't want a fairy tale. You want the truth. And you know the truth is pretty rough. This book will tell you the truth. So if uh, you will excuse me, we are going to try to survey actually a number of chapters this morning to try to see the brutal truth that is being given to us today um, about Israel about David, about us. You'll have to hang on to your hats, I'm afraid. It uh, is going to be a, a little more than, than just a, um, a glance through the story after story after story that happens in 2 Samuel chapters 13 through to 2 Samuel 20. Actually, of course, the story goes back a long way beyond that all the way back to creation, which God created very good. If you see beauty in this world, you are getting a hint of the goodness that God originally uh, um, uh, put in his creation. But it was a creation that was fallen, that was damaged, that was marred by human sin. The Bible says it's a creation which is cursed. If you experience misery and difficulty in this world... You are experiencing an echo of that, that first damage that was done 
to God's creation through the rebellion of human beings and which has reverberated down through the generations. The story goes on with Abraham, the great father of our faith, who is given promises, promises that actually through his descendants, one day that curse would be, bla- would be broken. One day all nations would be blessed. And uh, we have, you, you will have seen if you've been here in the coming weeks, that promise becomes focused Focused down onto King David. King David, who uh, you have been learning about. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, just just turn back with me. We're going to flick through these chapters a little bit. So uh, uh, with your Bibles, turn back with me to 2 uh, Samuel chapter 7. You'll see God in verse 16 of that chapter making extraordinary promises. Your house, David, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That is God's promise to to David. His descendants will reign on a throne forever. But then, last week... We saw something much darker in David's life. We saw him committing adultery with Bathsheba. We saw him confronted by Nathan, the prophet. And uh, God said through Nathan something equally important in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 10. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me, says God, and you've taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Two things, do you see? A promise from God that his descendants will rule on a throne forever and a curse. The sword will not depart from your family forever. Many ways, those two incidents are the sort of hinge on which the whole story of the Bible hinges. Up until that moment, we have been imagining perhaps it is possible that one of the descendants of Abraham will one day be good enough to break that curse that came onto creation and bring about the blessing to all nations that God has promised. But from from 2 Samuel 12 onwards, there is a big question mark over that. Because there is a sword that will be on David's house forevermore. How's that going to be resolved? Hold that thought and we'll see it in a moment. As the rest of the story then for chapter after chapter unfolds, we're going to see three themes. And I want to pick them out for you one at a time. And the first theme is a theme of turmoil. After God pronounces that curse, we find trouble after trouble after trouble comes upon David and his family. Chapter 13, 
which in the ESV is, is headed Amnon and Tamar, tells the story of how one of David's sons, Amnon, rapes his half-sister, Tamar. It is a brutal, nasty rape driven by lust, and indeed he hates and despises Tamar from the moment that he's taken her. There are a few nastier um, bits of sexual sin in the whole of the Bible. And what does David do? Nothing. He seems paralyzed, unwilling to discipline his children. The story of my generation in particular. Certainly in Britain, my generation still lived with a certain residual Christian morality. We sinned in all kinds of ways. But actually, we hid it. But when my generation started to raise children, uh, those who weren't Christians started to think, well, that is, that is hypocrisy to try to impose morality that we didn't ourselves keep. And the, the, the hidden failures of my generation became the open failures of their children. I've, I've sat in a parent-teacher meeting where one of the parents has asked the, the, the teachers, how much cannabis can my children take and still be okay for school the next day? I've sat with a, with a, a, a father who said that he, he, he walked into his daughter's room to find her in bed with a boy. And what could he do? He quietly closed the door and walked away. He felt uncomfortable about it. But he secretly had slept with other people when he was a young adult. He felt he had no right to judge. Maybe that's what's going on with David. But he fails as he fails to discipline his children. They say, don't they, that uh, the biggest... Uh, thing that young people lack is self-esteem. I'm not so sure. The Bible says uh, that again and again, what, what young people lack is the discipline of their parents. And uh, things move from bad to worse. Another brother, Absalom, is so furious that his sister has been defiled that he kills Amnon. Now there's murder in the family. And what does David do? He still does nothing. And here we have the result. A daughter defiled, a son dead, a house now divided, a family divided, soon to be a nation divided. A sword shall not depart from your house, David. And here it is unfolding. We live in a world of turmoil. We live in a world of trouble. We live in a world of, of sexual sin. We live in a world of violence. Things that shock us as movie moguls are exposed for their sexual uh, depravity 
or hidden violence that happened behind uh, closed doors is uh, brought out into the open, they should not shock us. Because this book has warned us that that's the world we live in. But there is a second theme as well that unfolds. David now is trying at least partially to live as a man of integrity. Now he has failed. He has failed as, because he was an adulterer with Bathsheba. We saw that last week. He has failed now to discipline his own children. He fails again and again. But he tries to live as a man of integrity. That son, Absalom, who murdered his brother, becomes uh, 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 bent on taking over the kingdom. He wins over the people, and David has to flee from Jerusalem. And David is a model leader in many ways as he flees. Uh, you can find stories, for instance, where he says to people, this is my fight, not yours. You don't, he doesn't want to recruit innocent people into his battles. You can find that he trusts and entrusts himself to God. But there's something particular I want to pick out for you in 2 Samuel 16 that David does. From verses 5 onwards, we see him interacting with a man called Shimei as he flees from his own son from Jerusalem. When King David came to Bahurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul whose name was Shimei, the son of Gerah. And as he came, he cursed continually, and he threw stones at David and at all the servants of David, and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. And Abishai, the son of son of Zeruah said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, what have I to do with you, the sons of Zeruah? If he is cursing because the lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? David said to Abishai and to all his servants, behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite leave him alone? Let him curse for the Lord has told him to. I've walked along that valley. It's a little steep, uh, deep valley called the Wadi Kilt, which heads out of Jerusalem and towards uh, Jericho. And it is so steep that you can stand on the, on the top. Is this microphone playing up? Is that better? Barely. Try that. Yeah. It's so steep that you can stand on the top of this valley and you, and you can throw stones down on the people walking in the bottom of it or throw, throw soil. I've, I've walked that valley and actually I've walked the valley that David walked as people curse me. And anyone actually in this fallen, broken world, 
who wants to follow Christ will find that that happens. And what do you do in those circumstances? Do you stand on your own dignity and do you say, well, that's not fair, it's not right? This Absalom son of mine shouldn't be coming and uh, uh, taking over my kingdom? Or do you say, actually, even if the precise details of the curse that is being brought on me are not accurate, I've done enough wrong to deserve cursing. A friend of mine in Christian ministry was um, uh, criticized um, very badly and, and, and he said just that. He said, well, I actually don't think that what that person is saying is true. But if they really knew what goes on in my heart, they'd have far worse things to say about me. So I'm not going to worry. Let him curse. David is living, you see, as a forgiven sinner. He knows the bad he's done. He may not deserve to have his son try to usurp him, but he's done plenty of bad stuff. And so he says of Shimei, let him curse me. Perhaps it's even the Lord's words from this man. More than that, when he meets Shimei again, we find he is prepared to forgive him. It's in 2 Samuel 19, verse 18 and onwards. Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king. Um, uh, by this time, the usurping son Absalom is dead. He has been defeated and David is returning to his kingdom. And uh, he fell down before the king. Let not my Lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my Lord the king left Jerusalem. Don't let the king take it to heart. Your servant knows I've sinned. Therefore, behold, I've come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord the king. Abishai, the son of Zeruah, answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? But David said, What have I to do with you, sons of Zeruah, that you should this day be, um, be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For I do not know, um, for do I not know that I am this day king over Israel. And the king said to Shimei, you shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. Humble integrity and living in the world as a forgiven sinner is possible and is good. Going to work tomorrow on Monday and living in the workplace as a forgiven sinner and accepting some of the brickbats that come with that. Because frankly, no criticism that anyone makes of us as work, at work is as bad as the criticism that God could make of us if he exposed our hearts. So let's not worry about it. Forgiving other people who wrong us. Those things are worth it. They are good. They are the way that Christians are called to live in the workplace and in the family. 
with our spouse, with our husband and wife. Those things are good, but they will never be enough. They will never be enough to actually break that curse. On the story goes through to chapter 20 that we read where this man uh, Sheba, son of Bichri, rebels again. As if one rebellion wasn't enough. Here's another one. David is amazing in, in that story. We won't have time to look at it. But he appoints the man who was Absalom's main general, leading the fight against him. Now that the country has been reunited again, he appoints his former chief en enemy general as his own general to try to bring people together. But this man, Amasa, has another general to deal with, a man called Joab. Joab murders Amasa. Joab is one of the most ambiguous characters in the whole of the Bible. He is fiercely loyal to David, but he is a vicious, murderous, brute of a man. And on it goes, on the trouble goes. Chapter 21, we haven't got time to look at it. There is a um, dealing with an issue associated with a group called the Gibeonites. And frankly, there is no good solution in chapter 21 to what they should do. And then by chapter 15, uh, verse 15 of chapter 21, we read this. There was war again, not again. There was war again between the Philistines and Israel. David went down together with his servants and they fought against the Philistines and great David grew weary. And how? The poor man. He has been fighting and fighting and fighting since he was a young man. And every time he wins a battle, another one appears on the horizon. He, he is attempting and making a good stab at being a man of integrity in a broken world, but he is not going to mend that world. He's just not. And that's something that we all need to own up to. It is good to live with integrity in the workplace and in the family and in our neighborhood. And it will do some good. But it is not in the end going to mend the world. The curse still stands. So there it is, turmoil. And uh, a man at least beginning to live with some integrity in the midst of that turmoil. But then there is a third and absolutely fascinating theme that runs through these chapters. Again and again, there are echoes of true hope. For instance, back in chapter 18, we find actually that creation is fighting for good. We didn't see how David's son and now enemy was finally defeated 
Um, and we need to go back and look at that. In the battle that ensues between David's forces and Absalom's forces, we find something very interesting happening in 2 Samuel 18, verse 8. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. The forest is fighting for David. Creation is fighting for David. And it continues in verse 9. Absalom happened to meet the servants of David, and Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great terebinth, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. There is a massive irony here. Absalom had, had wonderful locks of long hair. It was one of the things that he used to display himself before Israel as, as being strong and virile because um, that is what Israel, uh, the Israelites believed in the Old Testament believed, that long hair was a sign of virility. It's not true. <laughs> I'm very glad to say... Um, Subsequent um, science has proved that actually those of us who um, are not quite so, so blessed are the more virile. I will defend that. To... But, but, but then there was, there, was a, there was Absalom. Absalom displaying his strength in his hair has actually been hoist by his own petard, almost literally, hanging there in the oak tree, lifted between heaven and earth, kept alive while people deliberate about what, the, what, what they should do about him. It is almost as if creation has arrested him and brought him to Joab. And there's a deliberation between them. What shall we do? Should we do what should be done in Israel, take him to the king for a, ju for a judgment. And as they are debating, Joab says, never mind that, and shoves three spears into him and kills him. It's extrajudicial ki killing. The creation is fighting for good. The creation is presenting them with the opportunity to do good, and the curse then takes over. And Absalom is murdered. Wisdom in this story is fighting for peace. That happens in the chapter 20 of 2 Samuel when this uh, worthless man, Sheba son of Bichri, is holed up in a walled city. And we find in chapter 20 verse 16, a wise woman called from the city, listen, listen, Tell Joab, come here that I may speak. Wisdom is, is portrayed as a woman calling out at times, particularly in the book of Proverbs. Here she is, personified wisdom, and actually she negotiates a peaceful way to bring this man to justice without everyone going to, to battle, to war. Wisdom then... Um, uh, brings peace, but not for long. On the story goes of trouble after trouble after trouble. 
This, this story, you see, is longing for something more. This story is longing for the creation which is fighting for good to finally win its battles and abolish the curse. This story is longing for wisdom which is doing some good to finally complete that process and break the curse. It's longing for something that we just don't see in this story. But we do see one thing. Do you remember I said that David was prepared to have Shimei curse him? He was prepared to walk under that? That story longs for a man who doesn't deserve to be cursed to take the curse on himself. This story is longing for Jesus. It's longing for Jesus who controlled nature so that he could speak to the raging storm and say, peace be still and bring calm. It's longing for Jesus who spoke with such wisdom that people said no one has ever spoken in this way and taught in this way before. It's longing for Jesus who finally, fully is prepared to take that curse, the curse that came at the beginning of creation, the curse that Nathan pronounced on David saying the sword shall never depart, curse that now falls on him. You see, as David walked out of Jerusalem, weeping as he went, he was anticipating Jesus who walked out of Jerusalem with the crowds weeping as he headed to Calvary. As David allowed Shimei to curse him. He was anticipating Jesus who allowed people to curse him as he hung on a cross. David was anticipating Jesus who was prepared to be separated from God the Father and endure all the curse that had come on creation and die to break the curse. And indeed, those stories were anticipating the final victory where creation itself has the curse broken on it so that Jesus rises from the dead. And creation which has longed from the beginning for justice now can begin to see a new creation in which there is no more mourning or crying or even death because the curse has been broken. 
Do you want real? This is real. This describes the worst of the human condition with brutal frankness. And I know, though I don't know how, I know the kinds of things that are being described in these stories will have happened to you. I know there will be people who have suffered from sexual sin of one sort or another. I know there will be people who have suffered from violence of one sort or another. I know there will be people who have been divided from others and hated by others. Because the curse still is found in this world. And it does damage far worse than we would like to think. This is a true book. But it's a holy book as well because it tells the truth of how that curse can be broken. It can be broken only by Jesus. And it was on his cross. And it was when he pushed that stone aside and rose from the dead. And it will be when he returns and brings in the new heaven and the new earth. The only hope we have is Jesus. This is a solid hope. This is a true hope. This is a hope that breaks every curse that we experience. My friend who doesn't like the Bible, he hasn't put his trust in Jesus yet. But he's starting to realize this tells the truth in a way that no other book does. What about you?